Uh, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, we're continuing our series through the book of Habakkuk today, uh, and we'll pick up from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll go to the end of chapter 2, uh, and that is verse 20. So let me lead us in prayer uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, uh, as we consider this passage together. Uh, please help me as I record. Uh, please help all of us as we, uh, as we listen. Uh, and may you be speaking to us and showing us Christ and helping us to love and trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you think a holy God can use something that is bad to bring about good? One of the privileges of being a pastor is that people are often willing to share some of their most difficult experiences with me. And there are many godly Christian people who have told me of the harrowing things that they've been through. At the time, they often couldn't see how God could allow such things to happen. But sometimes, looking back, they've also told me how God has used their experiences to, to draw them to himself, to teach them godliness, and to enable them to understand and help others, uh, to help them learn that eternal life is more important than the things of this world, all, all kinds of things, really. And sometimes they've alluded to verses like Romans 8.28, which says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And they know that the good there is that we're conformed to his Son and glorified with him in the end. But is this right? Or does God only work through things that are good in and of themselves? Last week, we saw that Habakkuk was a prophet who lived not too long before Judah were destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, you may remember that he complained to God about injustice among God's people, and God seemed to ignore his cry for help. And so how long, O oh God, he asked, must I wait for you to do something about this? And then God responded. He said he would raise up the Babylonians, a cruel and wicked people who did not obey his law. He would use them to punish his people for their sin, and Judah would be another victim of the Babylonian conquest that would overtake the known world. But in today's passage, Habakkuk starts questioning God again. If the question last week was, how long, O Lord, then the question this week is, how can, O Lord? How can you use these evil Babylonians for your purposes? And so once again, Habakkuk grapples with this issue in prayer. And as he does, he does it from a position of faith. He doesn't say, uh, God, you are useless. God, you are evil. God, you don't exist. Right? He will struggle and question because he doesn't understand, but he will do it as a believer. And so he begins by affirming two great truths about God, laying them out for himself as he prays to God. And the first of these truths is God's eternal faithfulness. He asks God in the end of verse 12, or in the first half of verse 12 rather, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? God is eternal, he is faithful, he is unchanging, and he is still Habakkuk's God. And this eternal God has made promises to his people. He promised Abraham that he would bless the world through his descendant. He promised David an eternal destiny. He even promised Moses that when he punishes people for their sins and kicked them out of the land, he would eventually restore them and bring them home. And so Habakkuk is sure, uh, the next part of verse 12, where he says, we shall not die. Now, he's not saying that none of God's people will die at all, but they're not going to die out. Even though God is going to judge his people for the Babylonians, God will not destroy them all because God is eternally faithful. The second thing he affirms is God's moral perfection. Uh, he says in verse 13, 
You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Right? God will not tolerate what is wrong and he will certainly not be implicated in it. He is totally, utterly and purely good. There is not a taint of sin in him. Friends, whenever we are grappling with things we don't understand, especially about God and about the way he works in this world, it is very helpful to lay out what we do know. For if we establish what we do know for certain, they are like pegs in the sand. They provide boundaries and limits for our thinking and praying about what we don't know. And within those firmly established boundaries, we can struggle and still be safe. We can struggle in faith. And those two things that Habakkuk knew, we also know them. In fact, we know them better than he did. We have seen in Jesus Christ, who fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament, that God is indeed eternally faithful to his promises. And we've seen in Jesus Christ that God is morally pure. He is perfectly just. Evil is so repugnant to God that in order to accept sinners like us, Christ had to die for us first. God is eternally faithful. God is good. And Habakkuk lays out these solid facts that he knows to be true as he struggles with God. And between these two statements, he sets out the big thing that he just doesn't get. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. If God is faithful, and if he's so morally pure, he cannot take part in evil, he does not tolerate what is wrong, how can he use the Babylonians of all people who are so evil? In fact, I think Habakkuk has to remind himself that God is morally pure because otherwise he'll be tempted to think that, that God has morally compromised himself by being associated with these wicked Babylonians. Verse 13 again, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look as traitors are silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? Right? The people of, of Judah, yeah, yeah, they are wicked, they need to be punished, but the Babylonians are worse. And so if they defeat Judah who are at least better than them, how can that be right? Habakkuk poetically reminds God how bad these Babylonians are. He, in verse 14, he pictures the world like a sea, and the people and the nations are like the fish in it, and then Babylon is personified as a fisherman who comes to, to catch the fish, in verse 15. And he doesn't acknowledge God, but he worships his own military strength, like the, like the fisherman who, uh, in verse 16, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So God, what are you going to do about this wicked fisherman, Babylon? Will you let him, verse 17, keep on emptying his net and mercifully, uh, mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk's asked two questions. How can you use such wicked people? And if you do, will you bring them to justice? And now he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at the watch post. I will station myself at the tower. I will look and see what he will say to me, what he will answer concerning my complaint. Now, the amazing thing in this book is that God actually answers Habakkuk. And the answer he gives to Habakkuk is not just meant for him alone. It's to everyone who asks the same kind of question. It includes you and me as we struggle with these issues. And the first thing he does is tell Habakkuk to, to recall the revelation legibly and clearly because it's meant to be read and acted on. He says in verse 2, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. And the second thing he says is that the revelation will be fulfilled in his, in his own timing. Verse 3, for since the, the vision awaits his appointed time, 
It forstills the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Right, remember how last week we saw that if you stop the story before the end, you distort the story? Right, a story about justice, you will think it's a story about injustice if you don't finish the story. Well, God is saying to Habakkuk that the judgment of Judah through the Babylonians, that's not the end of the story. Right, wait for the end of the story, because when it comes, your issues will be resolved. For God actually knows how bad Babylon is. And he is now going to personify it as a conceited, wicked man. Now, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Right? Babylon is proud, he's self-sufficient. He's the opposite of one who, who trusts humbly in God and therefore will be considered righteous. The righteous shall live by his faith, God says, but not Babylon. And so unlike the one who lives by faith, he will not escape God's judgment at the end. Furthermore, like an alcoholic addicted to wine, arrogant Babylon, verse 5, is addicted to the spoils of war. He's insatiably greedy. He never has enough. He wants to collect more and more nations and people into his empire. He will never be content. Babylon is arrogant before God and self-serving in relation to others. But the day will come, God says, where Babylon itself will be brought down. And the nations he has plundered and the peoples he has captured, verse 6, will take up their taunt against him. And so God gives five taunts about Babylon, putting five woes into the mouths of the nations, so to speak, as they scoff at him in his distress. The first woe is from the second half of verse 6. Woe to him who keeps up what is not his own. For how long? and loads himself with pledges. Right? The picture here is of a crooked businessman. who Lots and lots of people owe him money because he's cheated them, they've stolen from them, but one day they will come after him. And in verse 7, his debtors will arise, and he will be their spoil. And that's what's going to happen to Babylon. Because you have plundered many nations, verse 8, all the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you. God will judge Babylon. The second woe, focuses on the security that Babylon got through violence. Uh, the picture in verse 9 is of building a secure house from the proceeds of evil gain. Like a bird builds its nest high, no one can reach it, this house is safe. Now, historians tell us that around Babylon they built a wall so thick it was wide enough for a four-horse chariot to ride on it. Babylon built a secure house and paid for it, verse 10, by killing many people. So Babylon 2, verse 10. Would forfeit his life. Even the stones in the walls of the house, verse 11, and the wooden rafters would cry out against him. Friends, security attained by bloodshed and violence is no security at all. God will judge Babylon. The third woe looks at the way Babylon controlled its empire. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And even internally, Babylon was held together by violence. Atrocities were committed to keep the empire stable. But God says that kind of kingdom will not last. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Right? People who pour themselves into building kingdoms and empires like Babylon just waste their lives making fuel for the fire of God's judgment. God will judge Babylon. 
But it's not just Babylon now, in verse uh, 13. Uh, this is true of peoples and nations, because God's judgment on Babylon is part of a bigger plan. And one day, on the other side of that bigger judgment, the whole world will know of God's glory. For verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe describes Babylon as, someone, as being like someone who exploits the weakness of others in order to ruin them. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbors drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. Right? Babylon's neighbors drink his wrath. They imbibe his fury as they are overrun by the Babylonian armies. Their people are killed, their cities are burned, they are left naked, desolated, humiliated, defenseless. But God says he's going to do the same to Babylon. The cup of judgment in the Lord's right hand, verse 16, will come to him. He will be forced to drink his shame. And the violence he did, verse 17, to men and nature, to cities and people, will come back to overwhelm him. God will judge Babylon. The final taunt against Babylon has to do with his religion. What profit is an idol, the nations ask in verse 18, when its maker has shaped it? Has shaped it? Why you trust in it when you made it, it didn't make you? In verse 18, it is speechless. In verse 19, it is silent and it cannot teach. It might be expensive, overlaid with gold and silver, but at the end of verse 19, there is no breath in it at all. On the other hand, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Unlike the idols of Babylon, the Lord speaks, so all the earth should be silent before him and listen. He has just spoken through his prophet. And although he will use Babylon to judge Judah for her sins, one day he will call Babylon to account as well. For God is indeed a God of justice. And justice will be done not only among God's people, but in every nation of the world. And so as we look back on this passage, we're reminded of a number of things. I want to reiterate three minor points before coming back to apply the main point of the passage. First of all, we are reminded again that God is the judge of every person, nation, empire, and civilization on earth. God will judge the nations for the way they have acted. When nations act selfishly and oppress other nations and murder their people, when rich nations treat poor nations unfairly, when nations think they are so secure because they've got stolen money from others, God will judge. And that judgment is exercised in history as nations and empires rise and fall. And so those of us who are in positions of influence in our nations must take that very seriously. We are accountable as a nation for our behavior. Secondly, we are reminded, as we were last week, that justice will be done in the end. Uh, when God said to Habakkuk last week that he would use Babylon to judge Judah, that wasn't the end of the story. This week we see that God will judge Babylon. But even that is not the end of the story. 
God's judgments in history are but shadows or warnings or tastes of the final judgment that awaits at the end. And it's only at the end of the story we see that justice being completely fulfilled. It's only at the end of time when Jesus comes again to judge the world that perfect justice is meted out. And it is then and only then when God's justice is perfectly revealed that the knowledge of the glory of God shall fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And in his time, Habakkuk was told to wait. And in our New Testament reading from 2 Peter today, we are told to do so as well. The day of the Lord will eventually come. It will. Justice will be done in the end. Wait for it. Thirdly, we are reminded of the frailty of human civilizations and institutions. Babylon in the time of Habakkuk seemed invincible, maybe like the US or China seems to us now. But no nation is invincible. No civilization is invincible, whether it be Western civilization, Islamic civilization, Sino-Asian civilization. No political party is invincible. No company is invincible. No government is invincible. God will judge every human institution. So don't give your life just to create fuel for God's judgment fire. Don't sell your soul to your company or any other organization. Don't let them suck you into cheating others or treating other people unfairly. Your ultimate God's goal is to the your ultimate loyalty is to the God who created you, who loves you, who gave his son to die for you, and whose kingdom will last forever. Love him, follow him, give your life for him, and pursue what will last forever, not what will not what will pass away. But the main point of the passage is what Habakkuk was asking about at the beginning. He knew that God is morally pure, that he's in control. God told him in the passage we read last week that he is raising up the evil Babylonians to punish his people. And he wants to know, how can a pure, good, sovereign God utilize evil? How can God use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked one? How can God be morally pure and yet use an evil people for his purpose. It doesn't seem to fit. God's answer was that he is keeping accounts, and that justice will be done in the end. Yes, the Babylonians are evil, but they will pay for it like everyone else. They may be instruments of God's judgment, but they are morally responsible for their actions, and will be subjected to judgment as well. And friends, as we grapple with this issue, we need to remember, first of all, like Habakkuk, that God is good, totally and utterly good. And with that in mind, we examine the paradox. It's like having two sides of the same paper. On the one hand, looking from below, uh, people are morally responsible for their actions. God will bring them to judgment at the end. On the other hand, looking from above, God in his sovereignty uses all those things even these evil people, to accomplish his good purposes, right, without in any way, shape, or form being an accomplice to evil or condoning it. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Right? Both those things are true. Uh, in the feebleness of our minds, we can only think about one side of the paper at the same time. But actually, both are happening in the same things, in the same events. Right? We see that through the Bible storyline. Remember how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers? At the end of his life, he looked back and he said to them, You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Ultimately, we see it at the cross. Why did Jesus die? 
Well, the Jerusalem church, as they prayed in Acts 4.27, said, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Right? Jesus died because he was crucified by this coalition of wicked men who are responsible for their actions and will be judged by what they have done, for what they have done. That is right. But then in the very next verse, they say that these evil people conspired to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, you could also rightly say that, that Jesus died because it was part of God's sovereign plan. Jesus died because God knew that if you or I had to face his judgment, we would never survive, we would be lost, we'd be far away from him for all eternity. He didn't want that. Jesus died because God loved you before the world was made and he wanted to forgive your sins and make you his child. Jesus died to take the judgment for your sins so that you can be completely forgiven. He died to save you. And not only did God plan that he should die in that way, but that also he should rise again on the third day, ascend to heaven as our exalted king, and one day come back to judge the world so the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So brothers and sisters, as you face evil in your own life, when bad things happen to you, when you are the victim of crime or injustice or some other kind of evil, remember two things. On the one hand, evil is evil. God will punish evil people and evil nations. They are responsible for their actions. God will judge them in the end. And on the other hand, God is still in control. God brings good out of evil. He uses evil to bring good. It was a very evil thing that people treated Jesus the way they did. But God used that to bring about a very good thing, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God can bring good out of evil. It makes evil no less evil, and it makes God no less good. But through everything in this world, he is working out his good purposes. God is rescuing a people for himself who love him, who belong to him, who are being transformed into the image of his Son. He is working in your own personal life to make you more like Christ, which is really the most important thing for you. And he is hastening the day when all wrongs will be put right, when sin and all its consequences will be gone forever, and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's bow our heads and reflect on the word that we've received today. Let's listen again to the words of Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Will you trust him that he is doing that for you, my dear brother or sister in Christ, whatever you are going through? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed sovereign, that you rule the nations. We thank you that you are indeed pure and holy, too pure to tolerate evil. And we thank you that you have made a way for us to come to you through the death and resurrection of your Son. Father, there are still things we don't understand. There are still things in our lives and in the lives of those around us which we, which we find hard to explain. Help us, Father, as we struggle with them, 
to keep firmly on the foundation of your word, to hold fast to your goodness, your sovereignty and your love, to look forward to the day when Jesus returns and your justice is seen, to believe that you can indeed bring good out of evil and to trust you in the darkness even when we can't see how. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.